Howdy, folks. It is Monday once again, which means it is time to roar with me and my guest today. We're going to do that in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about another great show out there. It is called The Independent Riot, and it is hosted by my friend Jim Duncan. He has been on this show several years ago, back when he was uh, just author Jim Duncan, but this guy does it all. He's an author and now a podcast host. You can find this podcast. He does video interviews, so I really do recommend checking out his YouTube channel, The Independent Riot. You can, of course, find those interviews in audio form on all podcatchers as well. But Jim really gets into some interesting areas. He covers the deep state, uh, issues with China, conspiracy theories, all sorts of things like that. It's kind of like, uh, you might say like Alex Jones with just a little more critical thinking involved. So check out the independent riot. You are not going to regret it, nor are you going to regret the interview I did with today's guest. You could have heard and seen this one live if only you were a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride on Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty, or alternatively, you can support us on Locals at lionsofliberty.locals.com. But either way, whether you heard it then or you're hearing it now, let's get ready to roar, baby. With me today is a former Broadway actor who left Broadway and left New York, largely in response to the COVID hysteria, and he has since been doing plenty of roaring on his own. I'm very pleased to welcome. Clifton Duncan. Clifton, are you ready to roar? Uh, I've been roaring for some time, it seems. That's why I'm in the position that I'm in. So here we are. Uh, indeed, you have been, Clifton. That's how I, I you first came to my attention, is all the roaring you've been doing out there uh, about this COVID stuff, about the restrictions, the mandates, and everything like that. Uh, so before we get into your particular story about just how you ended up leaving New York City, leaving Broadway, essentially. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about where you were? Who was Clifton Duncan prior to all this COVID madness? Where did you grow up? And particularly, I'm, I'm curious, kind of also, what inspired you uh, to become an actor? I'm a military brat. Uh, when people ask me where I'm from, I say Germany, Virginia, Belgium, and Virginia in that order. Um, you know, I was always sort of an artsy fartsy kid. Uh, I was into uh, drawing, uh, dabbled in music. Um, I was in band for a little bit, uh, poetry and uh, short fiction I also, um, I also enjoyed. And um, eventually I ended up uh, dropping my French class in high school to chase a girl into drama class. Just about every straight guy, when you, when you, when they ask about the, how you got into <laughs> acting that they say, yeah, I was following some girl. Um, and, um, you know, I got a lot of encouragement and uh, it just, it was something I had an aptitude for. And uh, I just, I never, like I've seen people break down in tears um, in, uh, in front of an audience and it just never was a problem for me. I never had a problem being in front of audiences. And, um, you know, I was just good at it. Kept getting cast in the shows. And um, people said early on, you know, if you really apply yourself, um, you can be successful at this. And um, so I went on, um, I went to undergrad uh, to to uh, Virginia Commonwealth University and got a useless de uh, theater degree, a BFA. Uh, and then I was in DC for a little bit, but then I decided to put all my eggs in one basket and went to New York University's graduate acting program. Um, it's one of the big three conservatories, the other two being um, Juilliard, aka uh, Jail Yard, and the Yale School of Drama, aka the Jail School of Trauma. And um, I got out in 2009, right in the midst of um, the Great Recession, uh, clawed my way up. I was doing plays all around the country um, at, at major theaters. And then when I hunkered down to New York, finally around 2017, um, things began to take off uh, for me. And I began to establish myself um, as one of uh, as a singing actor of note uh, in New York City, which is very difficult to do. 
I did a, a Broadway play called The Play That Goes Wrong. Uh, I had to leave eventually due to injury, but then things just kept going up from there. Did some great off-Broadway gigs, some, um, some standout concert performances. And um, yeah, on top of that, um, yeah, I was beginning to uh, win uh, award recognition for my work. And uh, then I started breaking into television. So things were really going in the right direction. And uh, then in early 2020, everything uh, shut down. And initially... I was pretty much on board. And the, and the irony is that um, uh, while everyone else was talking about, oh, it's just the flu, brah, um, I was one of the few New York, it was like me and some middle-aged Dominican <laughs> women who'd be on the, on the subway masked up and, and gloved um, in like January and February. You know, I was talking to my therapist about this um, uh, in January 2020, saying, you know, hey, uh, th like there's no way I mean, New York City is an international travel hub. I, mean, I was like, there's no way the virus isn't here already. So, you know, I'm stocking up um, on supplies. And, um, you know, I'm sure my roommate at the time thought I was insane because I had what I called on my hazmat suit, you know, just gloves and masks. And I'm, I'm wiping down my keys and my phone and my groceries and my mail at the apartment. I'm trying to sanitize every knob and handle and, and surface um, in the apartment. So if people try to say that uh, I'm some kind of denialist as far as this disease goes, uh, um, they're, they're fools. And what's more is that I was probably more aware of the disease earlier um, than they were. And, and I prepared accordingly. But uh, over time, it became, um, I became well, one, it's good to have a diverse array of friends because I had one, um, one friend in particular who was, um, you know, I was like scaremongering her and she was like, well, I don't know about that. And she was sending me articles. Um, one, one, of, uh, one of them was the, um, the uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed by John Ioannidis um, that alleged that, um, you know, it, it wasn't quite the threat that we were being told that it was. And I was annoyed at first. Um, and, uh, you know, like I, I did a post on my Instagram back in like March 15th or something like that, because there was a story that came out that uh, an usher for one of the Broadway shows, uh, had tested positive for COVID. And um, the show was just, they're going to let the show continue. And at the time, you know, I said, all the things that you hear from what I call COVIDians now, I said, you're putting lives at risk. Um, you know, it's musicians, it's patrons, it's, it's the actors, yada, yada, yada. And I was outraged. Um, but over time, things just didn't really add up um, for me. And I said, you, we can't live this way forever. But apparently, um, people are really prepared to do that, which is uh, insane to me. I'm curious, even before this COVID stuff, because now you're out there talking about, you know, like you said, you've been roaring out there lately for the past few months, at least. What did you have any like, what were your thoughts politically before that? Were you generally like, did you have any skepticism of official narratives in general? Or were you just not apolitical? Like, what was your outlook prior to all this? Well, you know, I've always been um, interested in politics, um, I, and I don't know why. When I was um, a young actor in Washington, D.C., and I was like 22, 21 years old, and um, I was kind of living out of my, my 1998 Mercury Sable, which I was always salty about because people confused it with a Ford Taurus. It's not a Taurus. It's a Mercury Sable, people. Um, and, you know, but one of the few radio stations that came in clearly was C-SPAN. And I really enjoyed listening to um, like the call-in shows and hearing people's different opinions and, um, you know, interviews with different politicians and, and whatnot. I, and I have no idea why I was into that kind of stuff. Um, but I would say that my 
general opinions for the longest time. I mean, you know, uh, there, there's a, there, what's the phrase default liberal sort of your default factory setting. Um, you sort of just passively accept, you know, whatever your teachers say and whatever the news says, uh, whatever, um, y- you know, the, the authority figures around you say, and you just take it as axiomatic. That you those don't things even take are it true. as political. You're position. never really you just ex- take it as this is, this is the world. Exactly. This is yeah, exactly, this is the way that life is. So, um, you know, and, you know, I didn't even know there was another way to think or another way to see the world. And, um, you know, I, I'm sort of fortunate, so to speak, in a way, because um, I don't know if you are, are familiar with the controversy that became known oh, yeah. as Gamergate. Very, very much so. But, um, right. So that was a big turning point for for me. And it's not, in a way, it was sort of, it happened uh, organically. What, what's the what's the phrase? It happened slowly than slowly than all at once. Can you give like the thirty second summary of Gamergate for anybody who doesn't isn't really familiar with it that might be listening? No, because there's no way to do it. But <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, it, essentially, it began as a sex scandal, and um, it it really blossomed out from there. Uh, and it became uh, a the, it was phrased as a consumer revolt, uh, where you had all these gamers, this sort of you know the, these niche hobbyists who were pushing back against uh, these. Uh, emphatically, quote unquote, progressive journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it it was interesting because um, it, it wasn't just video games. It wasn't just about, um, you know, a consumer, re- a consumer revolt. It was about um, one idea. It, it was one of the first sort of, um, what can I say, occurrences where uh, I sort of looked at, we, we got a peek at what the culture war uh, is because you had these gamers who really are benign kind of people. I mean, you know, I, and I was paying attention because, you know, I used to play video games a lot. I still do um, to an extent. And, um, you know, back in the day, you would, uh, you, you know, you you'd go to gaming publications and outlets to get information on games. You did not go to get uh, schooled on patriarchy and racial justice. And yet these kinds of um, ideas were, you know, all over websites like Polygon and Kotaku. So it's a long, long, long kind of a thing. But the, the but the broader point is that it, it bubbled up into the mainstream uh, atmosphere to the to the extent where it got a, a very infamous Law and Order SVU episode written about it, which it, which satisfied nobody. Uh, which is hilarious. But, um, you know, the, the, the I think the biggest takeaway for me was that I saw what was actually happening and how it was actually unfolding. And then I also was able to contrast that with how it was be re- how it was being reported on in the mainstream press. And so I was getting into arguments with Facebook friends who just asserted with full confidence that it was about keeping women out of gaming. It was about sexism. It was about are these privileged, angry white males, and um, they just had no clue what they were talking about. Um, they didn't know what was going on. So I had so and seeing myself reported on in a second hand uh, as though I was some sort of angry right winger. Um, it was really a glimpse into sort of um, the mindset of um, I guess you would call it the intelligentsia, the quote unquote progressive people who know me know that I, I rarely use the term progressive without quotation marks now because I don't think these people are progressive at all. Um, but yeah, I got a glimpse into how they treat uh, dissenting, you know, minorities, how they stifle um, any sort of discussion, um, how they kind of gatekeep and collude with each other, um, and just how they they really behave like zealots. Um, so. That happened in 2014, but it was also um, kind of the last straw because before that, um, you know, I I had been going through some gradual personal changes. Like in 20 in 2007, 
I decided that I wasn't going to use my race uh, to as a crutch for all the things that happened in my life. And I decided that if people, uh, whether they be whether they be, you know, a neo-Nazi or they be uh, a quote unquote progressive uh, white liberal or leftist, um, both of those terms I use in quotation marks, um, then if they, can, if they can't see me as anything outside of my demographic, as opposed to a human being, then that's their problem and not mine. When you say that, was that something you are you saying you were doing that a lot in, in like conversations you had with people or was it just more something more internal? Like if you had a failure or didn't make a, a certain play, maybe you might say, oh, it's because of my race. What was it? Yeah, well, you know, there was a. Um, like I said before, you know, you, you kind of grow up, especially I think if you're if uh, you're a black American. There's this idea that's sort of pumped into you as soon as you leave the womb, uh, you, your mother's womb. I don't have a womb, although I know that men can have womb, wombs these days. So, yes. you know, th- these are modern times. We don't want to get but, um, podcast gated here. So, yeah, yeah you know, we, we have to be progressive, guys. Um, but, um, you know, I just would uh, I, I would frame everything in terms of. Um, I made such a big deal about me being black and it, and it began to really creep into the work I was doing. For instance, you know, I would it's already hard enough if you're an actor to get rid of that kind of voice in your head. That's really self-critical. Mm-hmm. But think about all that. Think about how we all often criticize ourselves no matter what we do. And then think about the neuroses that you have of most actors. Uh, and then on top of that, think about those those two things. Plus, how am I being perceived by this white audience and and by my black peers? And um, Viola Davis actually uh, has commented on this uh, uh, publicly as well. You know, this kind of attitude is destroying black artists. It's destroying them. And um, it's and it's very limiting and it, it causes more stress um, than you need because you have this weight on your shoulders where you're like, you have to represent, you know, everyone, which is a racist concept in and of itself, in my opinion. And um, but yeah, before that, I just had a really just typical kind of left wing um, view. And I reached a point where um, I was working at this theater in about in, tw- in 2007. And um, some events did happen that I took to be very racial, uh, racial in intent. And there was actually justification for that. And uh, this is sort of who I am. You, talk, you asked me if I roar. I, I noticed that nobody else, my other my other black colleagues weren't going to say anything. And I said, why the hell isn't anyone saying anything about this? Was this a case of someone being openly racist or? or- well, so here's what happened. I'll, I'll try to be I'll try to be brief about it. But um, I was working at this theater and um, it was one of these really prestigious gigs in the summer that you go to. And this theater goes to all the um, the fancy conservatory programs and they and they get um, actors, uh, student actors, basically, to come and be and play small and featured parts, sometimes leads in these shows. And at this theater, the great thing about it is that because the engagement is so short, they can get movie stars who want to be actors again. And so it's a great networking opportunity. You're, you're, you're working alongside um, just some you know great people. I think that summer, um, Alice and Janney was doing a play. B.D. Wong was doing a one-person show. Um, uh, who else was there? There were a few. Uh, I think Wayne Knight from Seinfeld was doing a show that year, which is, which is hilarious. <laughs> so it's one of those places where like, you know, it's a big deal to be there. And so there were, there were these, um, so in the, in addition, in addition to these main stage productions, there were these, uh, 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 four assistant, young assistant directors who were each directing one act plays in the smaller theater over the course of the summer there. And so the first day that we were there, uh, all the younger actors, um, were, we're in, in one room and we give a monologue and audition, you know, to get cast in the first round of these one act plays. And none of the black actors 
it was three of us out of 24. None of us got called back for any of the parts, even though we were obviously, you know, qualified for each of them. And we were, you know, and we all gave good auditions. And at the same time, I'm seeing these mediocre and I knew some of them were mediocre because they were in school with me um, at the time. They were my classmates who were getting, you know, called back left and right and cast and everything. And and I was like, what is this? this is bullshit. Sorry, I, I don't know if we can swear. Oh, yeah, not. you can. Absolutely. But, um, you know, and again, you know, but but the other guys were just going to kind of let it slide. And I said, no. And and to their credit, the other actors that were embarrassed and and the, uh, the directors were also, uh, you know, they were just mortified. And then what happened is that I got, ca- you know, when, when the second round of auditions came around or the or plays came around, guess whose names were at the top of every one of these callback lists. And and and. It was just tainted, you know, and there was other stuff that was happening as well. Like I had one class, again, the guy who was in class with me, you know, because one of the things like you go up there and you're and you're kind of like a rock star. So because there's always like these young interns, this would never happen today, by the way, not in the Me Too era. But, uh, you know, there's all these like, you, you know, young interns there and you kind of have your pick because, uh, you know, you're you're in this upper echelon. You're working with the stars and everything. Sure. So you you were all convinced that, uh, you know, you're, you're going away to, to, to summer theater camp and you're going to have lots of sex and drugs and debauch and all kinds of debauchery. But I was striking out all the time because uh, I had no game. And, um, and you like, know, I was these, told I was going to be cleaning up here. What happened? You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and I, you know, one of my, one of my classmates just said, it's like, you know, Clifton, what your problem is, is that there's only two black girls here. Now this dude didn't know that white girls been chasing me since I was in a sophomore in high school. And, you know, and on top of that, one of the two black women that was there was, you know, who's gorgeous. She was in a play with us. She was married to the most Aryan looking dude you'd ever seen in your life. So, you know, it was just it was it was so cringy. And I just I just got like, you know, but also it was like personal stuff because I have a sort of left wing ideology about me being black and me being against the world. Everyone's out to get me. So there's a lot of stuff that was happening. And I just reached a point where I said, you know what, man, I just, I can't do this anymore. And, um, I- I'm tired of being viewed through this lens. And if that, and, you know, and tired of being a diversity hire, which has happened many times in my career, in my opinion. Um, so that was sort of the, uh, the transformation. So you think it's happened both ways then it's happened like where you've been kind of segregated, you know, um, you've been not picked for certain re- for, for certain roles because of your race. And then also picked for certain things because of your race as well. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's the thing because, um, and, you know, I had, I had an, uh, an older actress tell me very early on when I was in D.C., she said, Clifton, you know, she was a Vietnamese uh, American. She's like, Clifton, you're going to be cast um, either uh, because of your race or in spite of it. Mm-hmm. And um, that has proven to be to be true. And I didn't and I wasn't really that race conscious, uh, really, until um, I became an actor. And. Um, you know, so that that was so that happened in 2007. So that was the, sort of the beginning of the gears beginning to shift for me and me moving um, away from this sort of uh, ideology. And, um, you know, then around 2009, I discovered this book, which I recommend uh, lots of men read called No More Mr. Nice Guy by a guy named uh, Robert Glover. And I was turning the pages and it was the first unabashedly um, pro male book that that I had ever read. And it illuminated so many things about my life and why I, I thought the way that I, I that I that I do. And, you know, and it's not about, um, you know, he man, woman haters. It's, it's really about um, a, as a man uh, getting rid of uh, whatever shame you hold about being a man, which is very, very, uh, I think a lot of young men internalize this idea that men are bad, men are toxic, um, you know, uh, uh, women are superior, all this other, you know, um, divisive um, nonsense. So, 
I was already on a journey to um, to sort of rid myself of these ideas that I'd internalized myself. So that was 2009. So by the time Gamergate came along, um, you know, and I'd already had a healthy distrust of media, ironically, because of left wing uh, commentators like Glenn Greenwald, who, um, you know, who I discovered back in 2005, um, you know, and he's been consistent through each uh, through each president and, and administration and his criticisms of uh, uh, of, of press yeah. and journalists and journalism. And, um, you know, so the so the the foundations were kind of already there for 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 me. And so when 2014 happened. Um, and I, I saw, and I was already kind of watching like some YouTube commentators and like sort of alternative voices, I, I guess you could say. Um, cause I think also around that time where the, um, it was, uh, the, um, Michael Brown, uh, shooting in Ferguson happened and, and ironically, you know, you could go to the Washington post and they had all, you know, they, they, they were actually, they did really great reporting, um, as far as like all the evidence, uh, uh, that, that was, um, uh, that came out of the, the investigation and it just, it didn't support this idea that he had his hands up. And, you know, so again, all these things were happening at the same time. And then Gamergate kind of popped in there. And that's when I really, so 2014 was really the turning point where I said, uh, you know, something is really, really, really off here. And these people are either stupid or they're lying. And, um, I became very skeptical of uh, a lot of the, uh, as you said, the, uh, the established narratives. Right. And that's really interesting because that's, I mean, you have like a, almost like a 15 year, 10, 15 year evolution here where you've grown to distrust these official narratives more and more and more. But then here you found yourself in 2020 swept away, you know, maybe more than anyone else you knew at the time. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the irony is that because I was paying attention to these more alternative, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the YouTubers were the people that were saying, Hey, something is happening in China. There's a, there's, there seems to be a virus sweeping through. And we, you know, and I think a lot of us have seen, you know, this footage now of like, of people collapsing in the streets right, yeah. and, and healthcare workers, you know, uh, breaking down emotionally and all these stories about crematoriums um, uh, churning at, at high uh, at, at high rates. And so there was all this all these stories coming out about what was happening in, in China. So I was like, oh, crap, you know, something's going to happen. And, um, you know, and and also you have to bear in mind as well that uh, I, I I'd already learned to keep my mouth shut. Um, for the sake of my career. And I do think one of the reasons that I didn't take off um, as much as I, I could have is because, you know, it, it got to a point where I would get these scripts and I was very fortunate, you know, great representation and uh, just a, a great career. And, you know, you're lucky as an actor if you get, you know, one or two auditions a, a week or even for some even a month. But I would, you know, when, in the, when the season was in full swing, I was going out four or five times a week uh, for a lot of things. But a lot of these scripts, my manager was actually really is really great because she saw early on, you know, she would submit me for things where, you know, there was no race specified or, you know, she was like, he, you know, it, it says Caucasian, but he's right for this. So she was totally on board and she knows what I can do and what I bring to the table and other, and other casting directors too would bring me in for a lot of stuff. But, the, you know, I, I'd read these scripts and it was just so, um, I, I make the comparison to Tyler Perry plays. Uh, now, for those who don't know, it's like Tyler Perry is a very prominent black filmmaker. He he built his own. I mean, he has he has like a, a multi. He has he's like a billionaire. He's got a multi million dollar studio complex here in Atlanta, Georgia. But the thing about it is that um, you know he's a very deeply uh, Christian man. So you would watch his plays or his films, and the the plot progression, the story progression, such as it was or is, would be kind of halted. So these characters 
could like sing to Jesus or something like that. And so that's how I felt about reading a lot of these scripts where it's like, okay, we're going to read this, read this. Oh, now we're going to stop the progression of the story to insert whatever right, these right. sort of, um, I guess, quote unquote, progressive uh, um, ideals are. It's inserting values in a way that, that even if you did want to insert the values, maybe you would do them in a way that made sense for the story, but here they're just jamming it, jamming it in there. And it's really, it's really inorganic. And, uh, and the, the most recent example I can think of, and people have seen this episode, they've come back and, t- and told me about this. Um, there was a, a new series regular role that was opening up on one of the, what I call the Dick Wolves, uh, you know, one of those like law and order shows, um, procedurals. And, you know, these kinds of shows on the network, um, it's big money, it's life changing kind of stuff. And it was a role of like a, uh, it was a former cop turned, um, turned um, nurse or doctor, something like that, medical professional. And, um, you know, he's warm and he has a bit of right. I'm like, this is perfect for me. This is going to be great. And I'm reading, um, they, they send you what, what are called sides, um, uh, you know, a couple of scenes to read and, uh, and for your audition. And then one of these sides, you know, I'm, I'm reading, I'm like, this is really great. I'm loving this guy. He's interacting. And then, and then it gets to this point where it starts preaching about how, um, about, uh, the differences, you know, how black, how, how white kids, um, the, the main point of the scene was that uh, black kids are suffering from uh, sickle cell anemia because they're black, not because it's not detected, like, like not because of a multivariate factors, but it was, it, it's because, because they're not white, they're receiving inferior medical care. And it was just so shoehorned in. And I immediately was just like, <sighs> and you reach that point where you say, do I just, you know, grit my teeth, you know, grit my teeth and just, and just do it. You know, and, and if the show takes off and I'm on there for seven or 10 years, am I going to have to, you know, fight with producers and, and writers all the time and saying, hey, you know, could we change this? Could we maybe do it this way? Could we, you know, am I going to be able to look at myself in the mirror every day by, by just spouting off stuff that I just don't accept and believe in? Because, you know, given everything I just told you and, and your listeners, you know, and, and I'm someone who and being someone who said, you know, I'm not going to do the, the, the race thing anymore. How on earth am I going to be able to live with myself by, you know, reading this script about, you know, how awful my life is just because I'm black, which, which to me um, is a kind of a racist uh, assertion anyway, which because the flip side of that is that because anyone who's not black is automatically in a superior position and just happy and, and swinging in life and, and destined for, for joy and success. And um, so that kind of stuff, I was like, I, I don't know how to, how to deal with this. Um, and you know, and I would just sort of shut my mouth and not say anything. And people would say just the most asinine kind of things in rehearsals and on, and on sets. And, um, um, you know, and then, and then Trump got elected and that was a whole different, um, a whole different animal, you know? And, and, you know, when, when he first announced, I mean, before I left Facebook, I, I, um, I made this meme where I, I, I took a portrait of Donald Trump and I drew a Batman cowl on it, like really, really sloppily, uh, cowl. And I said, you know, it, not, not the hero America needs, but the hero America deserves. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was like, what, this buffoon, he's running. Are you serious? You know, and I didn't really take it that serious. I was like, there's no way this guy's going to be president. And um, clearly I was not uh, correct in that assessment. But the but after he got elected, the 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 reaction of the industry. And I guess, you know, you could just broadly say the left as a whole um, just struck me as really, really out of proportion <laughs> to what was going on. And, um, you know, 
so even then I said, you know what, just forget about it. You know, don't worry about it. Just, just keep your head down. You know, you're in these rooms talking about how, how horrible men are and, and white people, this, and you don't believe it, but you know, toxic masculinity, just, just stay the course. Just don't, you know, and I had like my social media accounts where I'd have my professional stuff and I had like an anonymous account where I said my true opinions <laughs> and, um, you know, that that's just how it was. But over time, and I, I recently spoke to, um, to uh, Winston Marshall about this, the, uh, the ex Mumford and Sons, yeah, yeah. um, guitarist who got canceled. Um, you know, and he, he said the same, he used, um, similar language to me. It begins to, it, it begins to erode your soul mm. when you are constantly sort of biting your tongue and you're not, cause you're not being true to yourself yeah. or to anyone else. And, um, and it's not that I had like these sort of far right opinions that, you know, that you would see like on far on, on 4chan or whatever. It was just stuff like, I don't think that men are bad. And I don't think that, um, I don't think that women need to be put on pedestals. Well, this all, that all does make you a far right extremist in, in, in today's environment. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, and, um, but again, these people, they, what, what I, I, I think that what they don't understand and this is what I've, I've observed um, very keenly now is that they're inside this this bubble and we've reached the point where the what the, the broader audience is no longer really a concern. What people are concerned about in the industry is impressing their peers, their peers being producers, writers, casting agents, uh, uh, you know, agents, uh, critics and so on and so forth. So they're really, they're really performing to please the ecosystem, but it's an ecosystem that's moving farther and farther and farther to the left. Whereas I think the general public, they sort of vary in their political perspectives or their opinions or they're apolitical and, and, they, and they don't care. Um, but whatever it is, this small sect of people, which has a disproportionately large influence on, on our culture and the cultural conversations is moving in one direction forcefully. Well, everyone else is either staying has has either stayed put, which I feel like I have for the most part, or they're just or they're being so repelled by what they're seeing that they're, that they're just going they're lurching in the other in the opposite direction. Right, right. And um, so it's um, it's it's very 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 strange. And um, but they but you can't tell them anything because they again they they're true believers and they're I keep calling them a cult now. Um, they, they, they brook no uh, opposing viewpoints, even, even moderate or like independent. There was a guy, I was doing a concert and we were on a break, uh, from rehearsal. And I made a joke about Joe Biden and his, uh, and his, uh, let's say intellectual incontinence, shall we say. And, um, he, and, and he kind of goes off about it and, you know, cause I'm trying to be safe, you know, I don't want to say anything too, too controversial, but, um, he starts going off about Trump this and Trump that, you know, which is, you know, which they always do. But then, but then he goes, and then there's these brain dead independents. And I'm like, how does it make one brain dead to be an independent thinker and voter? That's an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense at all. But the, his, his level of vitriol about it, just, uh, it, it really, really blew me away. And, um, I mean, by that point I'd already unregistered from the Democrat party anyway. Um, but I know I didn't share that information uh, for the, for my own uh, for my own safety. But this is the kind of attitude that that is that is pervasive uh, in these industries, and I, I get pissed off because I know that more people than not probably agree with me. They're just afraid to say anything. The same thing goes for all these COVID restrictions, and but they're just they're afraid. And um, you know we can get into that, but uh, there's because there's a lot of a lot of. Um, the, these sort of restrictions and mandates are, are particularly onerous and egregious for actors for a variety of reasons, which I don't think people really understand from the, from the outside. 
Well, something else that a lot of people don't really seem to understand necessarily is cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. But one thing that many seem to agree on is that this is the future, that this is the technology of the future, blockchain technology, etc. And for that reason, many people are investing in cryptocurrencies right now. And thanks to our amazing friends, and this is really, truly one of my favorite sponsors, not just because I, I love what they're doing, but you know, they, let's be honest, they've paid us a lot of money over these over the last year or so. And that is because you guys have been responding to this advertisement for our friends at iTrust Capital. These guys let you invest in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. They have the lowest fees on the market. You can do so all within the tax structure of a, structure of a traditional IRA and protect those gains from that's right, taxation, which you know is creeping in here on cryptocurrencies uh, as we speak. Not just creeping in, I mean, it's here. <laughs> it is absolutely here. So the, the better you can protect the gains on those assets, uh, the better off you're going to be. And our friends at iTrust Capital are experts at that. So check it out right now because not only are they waiving their fees if you go sign up at our link, you are also going to get $100 in Bitcoin. So head over to itrust.capital slash lions today. Okay, so why don't we get into just uh, you mentioned when you're kind of going along in the beginning and really in deep on being afraid of COVID, wearing the gloves, wearing the hazmat suit, and eventually you started to see some cracks in there. But was there was there any specific moment or something particular you can think of where you said, "Hold on, what is actually going on here? This is this is not adding up at all," or was it more of a gradual progression? Sort of the same thing as I said. Sort of the same thing as I said about my um, political sort of progression. Um, it was it was uh, a trickle, and then it broke. Um, but to answer your question directly, um, there was one incident. I think it was in early May, where um, you know it was a beautiful, beautiful spring day. I mean, um, my my favorite. Uh, New York has its problems, but the spring and the fall are like the best seasons to be in New York City. It's just gorgeous. It's not too hot, not too cold. Yeah. I mean, there's literally literally called a um literally a song called Autumn in New York. You know, it's that it's that uh, it's that intense. And by this point, I was still masking up and the, the gyms were closed, right? Uh, because it's all for your health. Liquor stores were open. McDonald's is <laughs> right. open. You can't go to the gym. Um so I had taken to going I'd walk about 25 minutes from my apartment in in Upper Manhattan to this uh, place called J. Hood Wright Park um, on West 177th Street um, in Washington Heights, where they had a set of, um, um, you know, bars and different apparatuses where you could do um, like calisthenics, basically. So all the gym bros, we'd be over there trying to keep our gains uh, because we couldn't go to the gym. And um, but then one day I went and again, gorgeous day. And there's people in other parts of the park, you know, playing field hockey and, uh, and handball and all kinds of things. Uh, and it was me and one of one other guy, I was wearing a mask again outside. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is a side point, you know, I, I, I wore these masks so much and I would try to work out in them. And there were points where I began, well, I just, I, I would get dizzy. I thought I was going to pass out at a couple of points. Um, you know, it was just really bad, you know, and I, and I, and I, and even then I didn't really make the connection that that might be what the problem was. So you were really wearing it because whenever I would have to go to the gym to work out, I would kind of I would wear one of these ones that were kind of loose and you know, kind of like not really wear it. And I was you know mostly breathing the whole time. But if you're wearing like an N95 or something, I mean, I, I can't imagine trying to work out like that. Well, it was one of these crappy surgical masks. But even then, like once the gyms did reopen and uh, and I would have, uh, you know, like uh, like cloth maskers or a cotton mask or something on my face, it wouldn't stay on anyway. Right. For one, like, I'm, I'm, you know, so I mean, you can't. And this is why I get pissed off, because you can't squat 
hundreds of pounds or deadlift hundreds of pounds and not be able to intake full air. And then even not even when you're not even lifting between sets, you got to catch your breath and recover. You can't do it. And I sweat so much that the, the, the sweat would weigh down the mask anyway. It would pull. It, and so it would just be hanging off, <laughs> hanging off my face almost. So, you know, it's just so it's so ridiculous. And I can't believe people just, you know, they, they just go with it. But so I'm at this park. It's me and, and one other guy with tons of space. And and I'm and I'm noticing like how empty this section of the park is. And um, this cop ends up coming over and saying, hey, you can't be here. This part, this part of the park is closed. And I was like, oh, OK. So I go back and I tweeted about this. I think if you go back and find out this like, part of the park is. <laughs> well, is you know, and mind you, like I just said, other people were out there hanging out in other parts of the park, like nearby. So it didn't make any sense. And by the, and at this time. Right. The our, we our wave, like the, the big surge was going down. Right. So I'm like, so I'm thinking to myself, you know, OK, it, it, things are getting better now. Um, uh, you know, our numbers are going down. So it looks like maybe we'll be kind of um, coming out of this thing. And when I got kicked out of the park and then um, the, I saw the police officer from a distance, I saw him wave to somebody in the adjacent uh, par- apartment building saying thank you. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. Did somebody narc on us um, and, and snitch or something like that? And I don't know if that happened, but, you know, then you see Bill de Blasio talking about, you know, if if you don't see businesses that are complying with our COVID measures, you know, call, call in and, and let us know. And um, there was at that moment, I said to myself, you know, something is something is wrong here. It's not just that our numbers are going down, but the restrictions seem to be increasing. But there seems to be something that's fundamentally changed in the in the psychology of the city and where people are think it's okay to snitch on each other, where people are, you know, people would just I mean, New Yorkers, we already spend enough time trying to trying to just ignore all the noise and ignore other people. Um, But there, you know, and this is you know, I, I, I take it too personally, just, you know, it's, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a sensitive soul, Mark. That's why I'm an artist, but to see people just veer, to just go out of their way to avoid you. Yeah. There was oh, something yeah. to me that was very anti, you know, they call it social distance, uh, social distancing. But I'm like, this is anti social distancing. What is what this is. I used, I used to get that all the time in Los Angeles. If I, I could tell, cause this is when I think there was a mass mandate had, had been put in place and inc- you were supposed to even wear a mask outdoors. Of course, I didn't do that because I thought that was absurd. Like if I'm just going to walk my dogs by myself, but I would see people, mm. I, I could tell, I could see the look on their eyes when they would see me, you know, coming towards them without a mask on and the look of horror in their eyes and they would immediately cross the street. And this is what, this would happen all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, completely, completely. They're just, they're, they're, they're convinced that, um, uh, you know, and some people still do it to this day. It's just, it's, you know, I, I don't know what, what, what's up with these people. Well, I do know what's up with them, but, um, but it, it was just this moment where I said, something is, um, something is, th- there's something wrong here and w- something has changed. That, that, that was the main thing. But then there was, um, there was Andrew Cuomo who gave this press conference where this reporter asked him uh, about the, economic ramifications of protracted lockdowns how dare she and he launched into this tirade about uh, you know how death is worse than a bad economy and how if you want to work go get a go get an essential job or, or go be an essential worker as if you know a you could turn in some application and just become a doctor or a mechanic or something <laughs> right. next week or b you know if you were living a certain way 
you know, taking a job at the Dollar General, which was still open, or McDonald's, was, was going to help you pay the fucking bills, you know? And when when I saw that, I got this feeling in my stomach, which to this day I can't, I still can't describe, but it was a mix of like, of horror and just, I, I don't know what it was, but I said, oh my God, this man will do anything. This man will justify any action he takes to, um, to, um, I guess, fall in line with his sort of really extraordinarily rigid moral framework. And by that time, uh, you know, then you began to see the political divide, right? Because I was also watching, at least for the first week or so, I was watching Trump's press conferences. And again, I would, you, you could see the clear, clear divide between people who were actually watching the press conferences and people who were watching the reporting on the press conferences, right? So like th there was that one day where I think it was uh, where Trump first mentioned hydroxychloroquine. And I think he said something like, you know, you know, it might work. It might not. I don't know. I feel good about it. And then Tony Fauci was like, you know, we just have to see, you know, we, we don't know. Like, like, like he was hedging his bets. Right. And then like the, the evening news would say like, Dr. You know, Anthony Fauci dispels it. Da, 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 da. And they made them out to be this kind of hero, you know, to Trump's like lies. And I'm like, dude, I was like genuinely confused because I watched the damn presser and you know, Trump was like this. It might work. It might not. Fauci said, we'll have to see, you know, what happens, you know, which is like the same thing, basically. I mean, <laughs> just different personalities saying it. Right. And then and then, uh, you know, and, I, I, you know, there were some definitely cringe moments. Trump was good at those at the press like that. That one where he brought the brought in that montage of like him owning reporters. Or I'm like, there's, there's no place for this. But, you know, I found him to be pretty sober. He looked like he looked like shit, really. I mean, like he hadn't slept in days, but. You know, he's 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 given a broad overview of the things that his administration was doing. They would bring on the guy from FEMA. Then he would bring on, you know, Ben Carson. Then he would bring on, you know, Fauci and Burks or, or Dr. Zahn or whatever, or Jerome Adams. And uh, from what I understand, his poll numbers began to kind of tick up because people were watching and saying like, OK, well, it seems like maybe, you know, he, he's at least doing something. He's trying to do something. And whether it's the right actions or not, you know, my personal opinion was like, you know, I don't think there's there, there was no Western government, I think, that really that didn't get caught with his pants down um, as far as uh, this person, this uh, particular virus is concerned. But I um, but anyway, by that time, um, I, I was already on to the, the whole nursing home thing and how things were just not kind of right in New York, um, like Bill de Blasio, for instance, banned protests. And people don't know this, but he, he banned protests in response to an LGBTQ uh, uh, rights uh, uh, activist group who was protesting um, this um, uh, some Christian um, group that was treating patients um, in Central Park. So they were protesting uh, the presence of these people to the, to the extent where like there were, there were some medical professionals that came back and were like, no, these, these people have saved lives and they're, and they're, and they're working. But the point is that in response to these, uh, to these protesters, these, these, these queer rights protesters, um, Bill de Blasio banned protesting, which of course completely went, went away once BLM, uh, once the BLM protests began. But, um, I said, wait a minute, they're banning protests. They can't. That's not you can't do that. This is the, this, this is America. You can't do that here. And, um, you know, but then there was, you know, and we had uh, there were multimillion dollar facilities in Brooklyn and, and then also in Queens that were erected or converted to take uh, patient overflow. And they were barely used. Everyone knows about the um, the uh, hospital ship that was sent that was also yeah. barely used. And, you know, at the same time, um, 
you know, paragraph five of uh, of uh, Anthony, uh, excuse me, of Andrew Cuomo's March 25th executive order about nursing homes stated that no patient could be turned away uh, based on their COVID status. And I tried to justify it, but I was like, why are they doing this? Because we already knew by that point that, uh, I mean, they were calling it the boomer remover for God's sake. So we already knew at that point who was most vulnerable to the disease. And I just, I couldn't, and I was trying to give uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt and, and say that, you know, there has to be some justification for this and for this measure. But whenever I would talk to other people about it, um, they would say that it was, they would dismiss it as some kind of right wing uh, smear campaign or right wing talking point. And I'm like, no, you know, it's you, you have to all over again here for you then. You know, it's, well, it's, see, here's the thing, because I mean, the, the thousands of people, at least 10,000 people needlessly died uh, because of these measures and these numbers, these death toll numbers were being used. Oh, I forgot. Speaking of death tolls, there's a story in early April, in the New York times, they said, uh, that the, the headline was something like, you know, death toll soars past 10,000 after 3,700 deaths are added to the toll. The thing about those, those deaths is that they were presumed COVID deaths. They weren't tested. They were just presumed to be COVID positive. And I said to myself, wait a minute, at a time where we need as much information as possible to ascertain just how deadly this virus is, why are we just guessing and, and, and saying that these, oh, well, I guess it is that what these people died from. And now, of course, they're reporting that people, you know, about the you know, deaths with COVID versus deaths of COVID and so on and so forth. You couldn't say that back then. But um, so that was another red flag for me. But the thing is, these numbers are being used to pump fear into the minds and hearts of all of these people. And then Andrew Cuomo was caught on tape. He, you know, he was caught on tape um, talking to some rabbis, uh, ra uh, talking to the, these, um, these um, uh, Jewish leaders about, and he said specifically, he said, these are not nuanced policies. These are fear-driven policies. Um, you know, and he, so they, they knew all this. They knew what they were doing. And, um, so yeah, so Cuomo gave that speech or that, that diatribe about uh, uh, about being an essential worker, and I said I have to get out of the city. You know, I, I have to leave because it's going to get it's it's. I just had I just had that premonition that things were going to get really 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 bad, and uh, so I I hightailed it to Atlanta and just and I, I've been watching from afar. And so then I got to Atlanta, and it was a completely different world uh, in Georgia, which had which has had its restrictions eased since April of 2020, and I searched. You know, I said, are, where, where are all the headlines uh, of like the massive deaths that are taking place in Georgia? I couldn't find them. And people even warned me before coming down to Georgia saying like, you know, watch out down there. The, 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 they're not taking it as seriously, yada, yada, yada. Be careful. I can't tell you how many people told me that before I was just taking a, like a two week trip to Florida in, in April of 2021. <laughs> I mean, there's a watch out yeah. down there as if something crazy is happening. And as, as soon as you get off the plane, the virus just comes at you because everybody's not wearing masks or what have you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, so, I, and that was a big, uh, that was a big turning point. Another big turning point, because once, once I left because you, you, people who who aren't in New York, they don't understand that, you know, if you're on the island of Manhattan, especially, you know, you, there is nowhere you can go without some kind of reminder that you're in the midst of the deadliest pandemic in a century. So there's like arrows on the sidewalk telling you where to walk. There's little circles telling you where to stand outside these stores. Uh, people are social distancing outside of Trader Joe's. So it takes you an hour to shop, even though previously it would have taken maybe 20 minutes to do so. Mm -hmm. um, there's 
uh, digital ads, placards on buses, um, uh, 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 verbal, uh, vocal advertisements on the subway. You know, there's, yeah. it's just constantly, constantly, you know, wear your mask, you know, socially distance and get vaccinated, you know, in all different languages, you know? So it's just this constant, constant propaganda that people are, um, are subjected to on a daily basis. And so, so they're horrified and terrified uh, uh, now. And now Broadway is, of course, reaping the benefits of that. But, um, you know, when I got down to Georgia or Atlanta, I said, wait a minute. So I'm, I'm like sharing joints with my friend, with my, with my brother's musician friends. And, you know, we're, we're going to bars. I took a job at a nightclub. 2019 all over again for you then once you, once you move. <laughs> you know, more like COVID-420. Um, <laughs> yeah. And but. You know, I took a job at a nightclub and th- this may shock you, Mark, but nobody who went to the nightclub was wearing masks or socially distancing. They tried to make us, I was on, I was working on security and they, they tried to make us wear masks, but immediately became completely impractical because you're screaming over loud music, trying to communicate these things. And, you know, part of my job was just greeting, greeting people who came in. So I'm, I'm literally just night after night, shaking hands, you know, getting screamed at by drunk people, <laughs> you know, spit flying in my face or whatever. And, and, and the, the, the club itself had an had a sign outside that said, you know, by coming onto this premises, you are assuming the risk of contracting COVID-19. And, um, and the thing is the club I worked at, wasn't even that busy. The other clubs in Atlanta were packed and, you know, and bars were packed. So people were living life uh, somewhat normally, The you know, and yet in New York, everyone was just terrified. And again, in Atlanta, like there were not you know, mass deaths because, you know, if there were, it would have been reported far and wide. Nobody talks about Georgia, even to this day. So that kind of shattered the narrative for me completely. And, um, and you know that that that's when I really began to um, just become more more and more vocal about what what was going on because it just it was clear to me at that point that um, uh, that something was just not not right. All right, guys, I got to take a quick time out to tell you about our good friends Carlos and Vanessa Abelar and their incredible CBD company. Paloma Verde CBD. You can find them at palomaverdecbd.com. And there is simply nowhere else you should be turning to for your CBD products, whether you use them for aches and pains, for dealing with a little of that insomnia, or just general stress. CBD is a fantastic resource without having to worry about getting all high or anything like that, uh, like you would from the THC component. Uh, this is CBD is purely the non-psychoactive part of the marijuana plant. Uh, extremely helpful for all, all sorts of things. Also for your pets, it can really help your pets too. And you can find everything you could possibly need. Tinctures, gummies, the gummies, my God, the gummies are delicious. You can find them all over at Paloma Verde CBD.com. But the best part is you got to use promo code ROAR and you will get 25% off any order over $75 and free shipping. That's right. And free shipping. Check it out. Paloma Verde CBD.com. Do not forget to use that discount code ROAR for a tremendous discount. Did you decide at the time that you decided to, to leave New York, were, had, had VAX mandates begun at that point yet? Or did you just see the writing on the wall overall? No, so I left in um, I left in June of 2020. Um, so this this is way before um, this was going on. But I will say, looking back at that time, it it really is astounding to see these interviews with Bill Gates, where he's talking about you know we're we're really not going to be able to get back to normal in, until we have a vaccine. How do you know that? You're not a doctor. You're not an immunologist. You're not a virologist or a vaccinologist. How how is this man just just 
telling everyone, asserting that what, how the pandemic's going to end. Like, how does he know that? You know, and um, but th- but there was never any kind of idea that it was going to happen. My my whole thing was like, I'm going to come down here to Atlanta and just kind of lay my head low, and you know, I'll I'll find an agent down here. You know, my, and my manager. We interviewed a few of them. Um, to, to, you know, just to continue working, um, because, you know, you, you can, you, you have, I have, you know, a good enough, uh, camera on my phone and I have some decent sound equipment and lights. Uh, you can see my, um, my, uh, uh my backdrop in the background so I can tape myself for auditions. You, you know, you just, you email them and then you get hired that way. So, you know, we were still kind of working, uh, remotely. Was this auditioning for stuff in, in New York though, or for stuff in there in Atlanta? Everywhere. Uh, everywhere. So like the major casting offices. So even in Atlanta, people ask me, you know, are you acting in Atlanta? I was like, no, because um, the stuff that I'm qualified for, I'm talking about guest stars, series regulars, and so on. Um, that That's the level that I'm at. Um, they cast out of, out of New York or LA. So that's where all these, so they, they, they'll shoot in Atlanta. That's kind of funny. I mean, the, the, when you physically move to Atlanta, they're like, no, nah, no, nah, we're we don't look at you guys got to be in New York. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, that, you know, well, it's, that's how a lot of local actors complain about that, but, um, you know, it is what it is, but, but it just, um, so it wasn't really a thing, but then what, what began to happen was that the, uh, our, our unions, uh, particularly the, um, uh, the actors equity association, which is, uh, which is the stage actors union. Um, and, and people need to understand that, um, in order to have any kind of viable career as an actor, you need to be a part of these unions. All the best jobs are union jobs. Uh, you get insurance weeks working on union jobs. You get certain kind of benefits. You get livable wages. Um, you know, so so there are reasons that the union the unions are a good thing. But the um, equity, especially, began to talk really, really. Um, I won't say forcefully, but they just began to talk about uh, when we come back, uh, like they sent out this one survey where it was asking about vaccines and vaccination, but there was never any option for you to, to say that, uh, you know, I don't want I don't want to take these or like, what if I don't want to take uh, a vaccine or, or whatever? And then I began to become sort of I won't say alarmed, but I was like, this is weird, you know, and they, they even held these webinars for their members and where they completely ignored anyone's questions about like, okay, what if we don't want to take the vaccine? Then like, what, what, what do we do then? And mind you, we were not allowed to work. So the unions barred, um, the union, I should say the theater union, uh, SAG after was different. Um, partly because there's more money at stake there when you're working on camera, obviously. Uh, and, and you can get away with it a little bit more by different shots and kind of, you know, uh, but, uh, the, the theater actors union, uh, just was very early on just presuming that everyone was going to take uh, the vaccine and they were, they were ignoring anyone who said, well, wait a minute, what if I don't want to take it? They just, they just completely steamrolled over it. And um, then they released these ridiculous safety protocols, which, I mean, it was stuff like, you know, there's no more communal coffee and, and water. You, 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 all, all the silverware has to be, a plasticware has to be individually wrapped. And, you know, you can't have any more backstage visitors. So if your friends come and see you in your Broadway show, your Broadway debut, they can't come backstage and celebrate with you. You can't do stage door now. That's like a, a huge part of fan service of the Broadway community. You know, you have excited fans waiting to get your autograph, you know, um, after the shows. So, uh, but anyway, it just... Over time, it, it, it seemed clear that they were really trying to push um, 
people to get these uh, to get these vaccines because they again and you can't blame them, I guess, because they'd heard from people like Bill Gates and Fauci for months that we're not going to be able to get back to normal until we get uh, a vaccine. No, no sort of acknowledgement that that maybe uh, we could treat the disease. No acknowledgement that um, that people overwhelmingly uh, clear the virus um, unless they have you know particular vulnerabilities. No acknowledgement of any of that. And but also no room for dissent. And um, then it came down that, uh, you know, and then I, I would get offers for things and they would say they would ask about my, you know, if I was vaccinated or if I was planning on getting vaccinated, which is just weird to me, you know. Um, and uh, eventually, you know, and the thing was that, that, that I'm missing in all this is that I caught I caught COVID. Um at my nightclub job and i'm pretty sure i know who gave it to me but you know it was like cold you know it was like december of 2020 and so i recovered from it i lost like i lost my sense of uh, taste for a, for a couple of weeks so i knew that's what it was and um you know i stayed at home and uh you know then i was then i was uh clear and i began to say well hold on what if you already caught it you know, like, why can we, why can't, does, does it not matter? Does it not count? But no one will, no one will hear anything of it. One of my first viral tweets was about when I said, uh, um, you have, you have an immune system is now a far right talking point. And because that's pretty much what it became. So it's just very, very bizarre. Um, but then uh, it got to a point where um, all these theaters, all these production companies like Amazon, Netflix, Disney, so on and so forth. We're mandating these. Uh, we're mandating you take the vaccine, and I just said, you know, I I, I don't want to take it. Sorry, but I, I don't want to take it. There's no medical necessity for me to take it, and um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into the weeds on its efficacy or or whatever. It's just people should maintain the choice of whether or not they want to take it. And what's really egregious about it is that as actors, I'm like our body, that by the way, because sometimes people will say like, we can't go mandating something that's not effective. Like, well. I, I, we shouldn't we shouldn't do it no matter what the, the efficacy should be a completely separate issue from whether you force someone to do something like that well you should always have a choice yeah. and um and you know and i i would try to say that you know this is a bad precedent that we're setting right now but by doing this um because you know good and well that if it were donald trump passing down these mandates these people will be losing their fucking minds you know it you know it for a certainty and um I said, but as actors, you know, our bodies, that's our life. That's our livelihoods. Yeah, yeah. You can't work remote. I mean, I guess I have seen some of those like, you know, play reading remote things that suck. They but, suck. Yeah, they, they suck. You know, it's, it's bullshit. You can't, you know, I, I was, I did this uh, little movie that, uh, you know, we were trying like to rehearse, do music rehearsals, you know, via Zoom. And it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work, you know, um, but you know, the, the point is that, you know, actors, especially like once you're at a certain level, it's a part of your job to to be in shape. So it's not just it's not just mere vanity that uh, that actors are are very, very um, diligent about uh, their, their health and appearance. Um, it's literally our livelihood. And once you when you have your union and your and your your peers who are who are telling you to take something into your body that, that you don't want, that could possibly uh, uh, you know, damage you, pay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say that. Um, to me, it's a violation of what it is that we do. And it's just, uh, it's not ethical. And um, I, I don't, I don't see why they don't see that there's nothing stopping these people if they want to mandate this, uh, this new product from mandating other new products as well, you know, down, down the road. 
I, I would try to couch it in terms that they might understand about, like, remember what the Republicans were doing after 9-11, where, you know, everything was about the war on terror and everything was about, you know, we have to restrict your freedoms and, and or uh, or in, or expand our surveillance uh, to to keep you safe, just broadly speaking. And then Obama got into office and he was supposed to be fixing all of that. And it turns out what? Guess what? Snowden leaks came down and he's sitting on top of a excuse me, this massive surveillance apparatus. So the point is that, you know, once these things are in place, um, you know, they tend not to go away that that easily. And because I'd sort of been, quote unquote, red pilled, I was already kind of, um, you know, on this intellectual journey about reading about the past and other authoritarian um, regimes. And I mean, even during lockdowns initially, uh, I remember there was <laughs> there was a there was a, a, a few days where I watched uh documentaries uh about the spanish civil war the french revolution um and mao's china all like around the same time and what i was so struck by was all of these sort of ideological parallels that fueled each of these movements and 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 i and i just and it scared the crap out of me and you know and like the first chapter of uh, solzhenitsyn's gulag archipelago about the arrests and, and like snitching and all this kind of stuff it really began to to concern me in terms of like you know what, what these governments were doing uh, officials were doing and um <clears throat> i said you know this is not there's something that's really uh, wrong about this and no one else is going to say anything so i'll just say something and you know, and I will say as well, uh, there was a, there was an actor named Chad Kimball who um, who set off. He's a Broadway actor who made this tweet about um, how he refused to allow his governor in Washington State, I believe, to uh, to bar him from singing in church. And Broadway Twitter, theater Twitter, just lit him on fire. They were just dragging him, and there were people that were saying, "I, I never want to be in a rehearsal room with you," and just just call, just you know. And I and I weighed in. And I was like, "No, he's talking. He's right. He's talking about government overreach." And again, they came after me as well. And so, so there's this, there's this prevailing attitude in the industry that, um, that, that we're living through the plague. And now we're seeing the, ramif the ramifications of that, which is like, you know, the theater is, it's off Broadway is, is really struggling right now. Shows on Broadway and people might not, might scoff at this, but, um, you know, and say, who cares? But, you know, if, if Broadway dies, if shows are closing, it's not just actors who suffer. Right. It's um, it's people backstage, the carpenters, uh, uh, crew members. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, wardrobe assistants who are working on the shows, uh, technicians. It's also custodians who keep the, who you know manage these old and maintain these old buildings, security personnel, ushers who are like, you know, retire like these you know, retirees or young people who work in concessions and selling merchandise. You know, there's a whole ecosystem. Then outside of that. You know, if you go to, uh, to if you went before 2020 to Times Square around 7 p.m. or whatever, and, um, you know, everything is just bustling. Right. There's all these businesses, bars, little bodegas, souvenir shops um, that that get all that business from all that foot traffic. So it's not just that, oh, it's just the theater people are, are angry, yada, yada, yada. It's like, no, there's a whole ecosystem that's built around this uh, built around Broadway and built around the performing arts that is being destroyed right now because of, because of this um, coronaphobia and nobody wants to, to say anything publicly about it. And, um, you know, they, they're, they're, they're making their bed and, um, you know, they, they can enjoy the, uh, the fleas, I guess. I'm curious how much you, uh, how much sort of pushback or 
feedback, maybe we might call it, you've gotten from your fellow actors, people you've maybe known in the industry for 10, 15 years? Have you, has, has, has you speaking out about this stuff made you like a pariah even personally with some of these people? Or are there, is there like a certain element of, of those that support you? Like what, what's the general sort of uh, reaction been among that community? I mean, they, they, they ignore me or they think I'm some kind of uh, lunatic. Um, there was one actor named Stephen Pasquale I got into it with, um, who, uh, you know, is a very successful Broadway um, star. He's also done a lot of TV and film. Um, people, people might most recognize him as playing, um, uh, playing Mark Furman in uh, the, the um, People vs. O.J. Simpson uh, miniseries, which is really good. You know, I mean, I've worked with him several times. And, and the thing is, I would defend him because people would say, like, oh, God, Stephen, he's an asshole. And, you know, I, I'd seen that here and there, but he, I never had a beef with him and I always got along with him. And but he made this tweet about how life should be made harder for the quote unquote unvaccinated. And I pointed out to him, I said, Stephen, uh, black Americans are one of the least vaccinated demographics. Um, is that, you know, what, what, what did I say? What, what, what hysterics like you fail to understand is, is that, you know, this demographic fact. And I said, is that the kind of, of, uh, city or country that you want to live in? And he deleted that, but then he came back and was like, you know, we're, we're trying to people like me who want to end the pandemic. Um, you know, some, some snarky reply and like, like read the data. And I'm like, dude, if you were actually reading the data, you would understand why I'm saying what the fuck I'm saying. You read the data, motherfucker. You don't know what you're talking about. And most of these people don't know what they're talking about. And it's not about, it's not about denying uh, the existence of the, um, the existence of the virus. It's not about uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, dissuade people from taking uh, the, these med these medical products, uh, these injections. It's about putting in perspective what the risks are and having an accurate assessment of how best to protect ourselves so we can just live our lives normally because we can't do this forever. And um, they don't want to hear any of that. And, uh, you know, I, I've got a friend who I, I enlisted to, uh, to, to troll through um, uh, social, you know, sort of Broadway and, and entertainment social media and kind of send me what they're saying. And, um, you know, it's, it's the same bullshit. Um, people need to wear their shows are closing because people aren't wearing their masks and not, and, and not enough people are getting vaccinated. That's all that's all they that's all they know. They don't know anything else uh, outside of that. So I don't know how it's going to end or if it's going to end. But, um, um, you know, they, they, you know, I mean, my my manager, as a matter of fact, um, I mean, we haven't even spoken in a long time. And, um, you know, she, at a certain point, she said, I can't submit you for anything anymore because everything every everywhere is demanding um these shots and now i have a friend who's telling me that that theaters are beginning to demand everyone get boosted now so it's it's getting it's not getting better it's just it's just it's just um it's continuing on and a lot of people seem to be thinking now there's a, a pretty common sentiment among a lot of people that have been vocal against this stuff like oh things are turning around uh people are starting to see the truth um I'm not seeing that. So I'm glad I'm not the only one that's not seeing that. Uh, there, there's certain admissions coming out in certain ways, but I, the people that I know that have lost their shit over this have their, their shit is still lost. You know? Well, you know what? I think, I think it is true that there are, I think there are more people now than not. Um, I'm in this chat group, for instance, I'm in several chat groups on, um, on Twitter and one, 
I was invited into by a bunch of moms, really. Um, which is funny. I'm like, I don't have any kids. I don't know why I'm in here. Dominican moms or <laughs> no, 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 no. But, the, but it's, it's a bunch of moms who, because, because I was, I was somebody who again was like, cause you know, just going back a little bit in New York. Um, one of the reasons I began to go to the other park is that the Fort Tryon park, which is right, which is near the tip of upper Manhattan. Um, the cloisters are up there. It's, it's very beautiful. Um, that was the park where I was going to, to work out. And uh, there were some uh, monkey bars there and some other bars that, that you could use to kind of keep your gains. And it was beautiful because you would see uh, people who, you know, they're, they're not working, obviously, but they'd be out there with their kids. You know, you see these like gigantic dads jogging with their daughters. You know, it's just it was beautiful. Um, but then they, they closed down this section of the park. They closed the playground down. And I get emotional now just thinking about it because, or you know, going back to those times, because I would walk past this park. And these see these empty swing sets, empty monkey bars, and padlocks on uh, on the entrance to the park. And I would say, why are we punishing kids for this? Like th that's what I felt like we were doing was we were punishing children um, for uh, for no reason really. And so I began to speak about that. And so this uh, group of moms invited me in, and it's you know it's it's become more now than just moms, but. A lot of these women, um, you know, were uh, progressive, uh, lifelong Democrat voters. And now they're now they're saying, like, I'm voting Republican for the first time in my life. I can't believe what's going on. I can't believe what the Democrats are doing. They, they, why are they doing this to our children? This is not scientific. So I, I do think that there are a lot of people who who are saying no more of this. Um, I think also, though, there are a lot of people who are just afraid to say that. Mm -hmm. And they're afraid to just to be public about it um, because of all the backlash and vitriol they're going to receive. Um, at the same time, it is really astounding, going back to what you're saying, to, to see people just double down and triple down uh, on just what on what isn't working. And part of the problem, I mean, Governor, uh, excuse me, Governor, I'll put that in quotation marks as well, uh, Hoshul in New York, who who uh, stepped in uh, for disgraced Governor Andrew Cuomo, um, who had to return his Emmy, poor guy. Um, you know, she's tweeting out about uh, about how um, continuing to wear masks and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, we're, we're, we're things are getting better because New Yorkers are doing what works. I'm like, dude, you have you've had the worst outcomes almost in the entire nation. What has what have you been doing that's been working? And like you, but you keep doubling down on this stuff. But it's but again, if you if you challenge that, then you're some kind of right wing uh, maniac. And so th these people are completely captured. It's not just um, the coronaphobia, but it's it's also built on Trump derangement. It's also built on this idea, what Thomas Sowell calls the vision of the anointed. It's these people who believe that they're better than everyone else. They're smarter than everybody else. And there's this arrogance and, you know, and it's they always project, right? So they call everyone else anti-intellectuals, but these people are completely deaf to any sort of uh, sort of debate. And what I find is that on on team reality, what's called team reality, um, there's people who, you know, there's people I don't see eye to eye with. There's a guy named uh, named Vinay Prasad, who, um, you know, he doesn't he doesn't um, he doesn't buy into the whole um, narrative about ivermectin, for instance. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's just he's not convinced. And, you know, we kind of went back and forth a little bit, but I respect Vinay because I know that he sees that something is wrong and I read his articles and I watch his videos and um, I respect his intellect. 
And I respect that he's trying to do the, the best that, the, you know, and I've gotten into arguments with some people on Team Reality, one, one of these moms in particular who, who can be very strident and so on and so forth. And, you know, and to be fair, you know, at that time I was, I was uh, maybe taking some more extreme positions, but the, at the end of the day, you know, we come back to the fold, we all are on the same team. And the, the, the point is that the people on our side, and I include people like uh, Martin Koldorf, Jay Bhattacharya as well, are, are saying like, let's debate this. Look at our data. Let's, let's talk about this and come to and, and figure something out. Let's have a discussion about this. Everyone else, I mean, Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci, to get up here and say, basically, I am science, aka don't question me. Who are you? Who really, like, really? You can't say anything. And that, and to me, that should signal, signal to everybody else. These people are not interested in any sort of like really scientific discussion. Team reality is saying like, look at the data, look at these charts, look at these graphs, look at these numbers. And, um, you know, and we, there, there's a spirit of, there's, there's a diversity of opinion on team, on team reality, but on team apocalypse or the, or <laughs> what I call the covidians, um, they're, they're just, they're deaf to any sort of dissension, uh, from, um, from what they're being from from their prescribed opinions what's being prescribed to them to think and to say that, that seems to be the real divide that i see today it's not necessarily left or right or democrat conservative whatever it's it's can you think and have a conversation and not lose your shit or are you just going to repeat what you're told that, that's the divide i see well you know it, it's and it's weird because it's sort of a silver lining for me right because um i I am very, I'm very proud of the sort of network that I am cultivating, that I begin to cultivate because, you know, even my timeline on Twitter, you know, I retweet uh, progressives, uh, conservatives, libertarians, um, even an anarchist here and there, even a socialist, a guy named Ryan Knight, who I disagree with most of the time. But, you know, when he, when he comes after the Democratic Party, I'm like, yes, brother, that's it, you know, and he also recognizes, you know, or, or um, there's a couple of guys named, uh, named Toby Green. And Thomas Fazi, um, who are they're, they're um, uh, the former is a, a left wing historian in in the UK. The latter is an Italian socialist, uh, but they wrote these great articles about the left's uh, COVID failures. And you know, they I, I'm just it, it's more exciting to me to have a plurality of different opinions and different kind of interesting people than it is to just have a bunch of cult like member of you know, to be a part of this weird secular congregation who just only has a single a single train of thought and single train of focus. And what's great is I think that um, I think people are beginning to put aside their smaller differences because they're seeing what the bigger battle really is. Um, it's not like you said, you know, if you're still playing that whole left and right game, I mean, I, I do it myself, you know, just so I, I, I can't I can't um, say that I'm above it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find language to be specific about who these people really are. Um, but you know, it's less about red and blue or, you know, Dem Republican or whatever. And I think people are saying, no, this is about uh, our future and not and, and it's about avoiding, excuse me, avoiding this sort of weird um, biomedical technocratic um, state where you are forced to um, you are forced by the state to inject yourself with something that, that you don't want in order to maintain access to to uh, normal society. And that's just not right. And, you know, people on the other side, 
their arguments are so stupid and they don't understand how stupid their arguments are. You know, it's like, oh, you know, how did ever, how do we ever get rid of polio or the measles? Da, 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 da. And it's like I've never been asked to show my proof of polio vaccination to go to the goddamn gym, you asshole. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? You like you sound stupid. And also these shots, you know, I mean, I, I had a flu shot um, a few years ago uh, at my my girlfriend at the time. At the time, her uh, her sister had just had a baby, and they requested that people get a, a flu shot before coming to see the, the child. And I was like, yeah, sure, you know, it's a flu shot, whatever. They've been around for a long time. So, you know, I had no issue with it. But now, you know, you can't you can't even say, hey, I don't think that people should be forced to take this thing and but without being called an anti-vaxxer. And so that's that's the level that the other side is working is working at. They're 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 idiots. Sorry, but they just they have no. They they all they have is is cloying earnestness and it, that they mistake for virtue. And they don't really have any strong arguments. I mean, I, I would like, you know, I would say for masks, if, if you want to go that route, it's like, OK, if you're if you're showing symptoms and you can't stay home for whatever reason, then there might be some logic for you to uh, to wear a mask and sort of block, you know, whatever you might be expelling, you know, as far as saliva or snot or whatever. You know, maybe there's there's a logic to that. But this slavish, superstitious devotion to them, um, you know, is I, you know, I just, I don't, like, what do you say to people like this? They're so far gone and they're so convinced of their superiority, their intellectual and moral superiority, supremacy. Uh, that's a better word, I think. Um, you know, like they, they just, they, they can't, they can't hear anything. So I don't know, you know, how are we going to save those people? Yeah. Well, I don't think everybody can be saved, but I think the best we can do is be vocal and and encourage others to do so and at least find our people you know find find the right people that are going to stand by us and I, I think like you said there are a lot of people out there that are afraid to say something that might be thinking along the lines of what what you and i are talking about here but they might be afraid to say something so it's up to people like you like i uh, you and i other people that are out there doing the same thing to lead on this and be the ones that aren't afraid to speak out even if it does cost us tremendously financially professionally uh personally and it certainly has for me um so i, I but that's only maybe kind of like them doubling down it's only made me double and triple quadruple down because the more that i you know the more i receive negative you know negative consequences for standing up against mandates or, or what have you the more i know oh i'm right like I, I am on the right side of things right here morally ethically anyway well because well because here's the thing you know it's not about um my my approach is saying like this is all absurd and we have lots of tools that we can use to combat. If, if you're that afraid, then there's things you can do to protect yourself. I'm, a, I'm not opposed to anyone locking themselves in their basement if that's what they want to do. Go for it. Well, here, here's the thing, you know, because I, I, part of my thing, and this might be tied into what I was saying before about me being sort of a bleeding heart kind of sensitive artist, is that what's, at, what's really at issue um, is that these people are, they're, 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 purporting, uh, they're purporting to save lives but what kind of life are they are they wanting to live you know they don't they don't know what living is and all the things that make life meaningful that make life uh, uh, a somewhat enjoyable experience all the things that give life meaning um, they they they're so ready to just throw away and i can't i can't stand by that and this idea that the government that that, that, that the state or your employer can can dictate what you inject inside your body 
you know, that, that to me is such a, a violation of your own personal freedom. And, and the fact that these people will say, will, will mock the idea of freedom. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you talk shit now, but just wait till somebody gets an office that you don't, that you don't agree with, who's telling you the same things and, or, or to do the same things. Let's see how you act then. Let's see, you know, so it's not just about me being selfish or wanting to go get a haircut or whatever. You know, I don't got no hair anyway, so, you know, fuck off. And I just don't cut my hair, so yeah, I don't care either. <laughs> well, there you go. It's not about that. It's not, it's about me saying for you too, for you too, to say like, we can't let these officials, these bureaucrats, these profiteering, corrupt, uh, uh, you know, pharmaceutical executives or whatever, we can't let these people just get away with this and just keep going because they'll keep doing it. Mm -hmm. They'll keep doing it. They'll do it again and again and again because they, because they see now how successful it can be, you know, and, you know, like just, why do you trust these people? So, so just so blindly, but that, that's the thing that I don't really get about it. Like, why do you trust these people so much? Well, uh, Clifton, I think we can, we can at least trust you. We can, we can trust you to, to say what's on your mind and to keep, I don't know. I've only known you for an hour and 15 minutes or so. Uh, but what, what does the future hold for you, Clifton? What do you, I, I can't imagine in the current environment, you can even foresee attempting to act anytime soon but do you foresee a future where you can return to acting or have you just decided to kind of move on and if so what what do you see coming i mean you, you got the podcast like i said you've only had uh, a few episodes but I, I really dig what you do and you got some really impressive guests on there so i think you do have a knack for that kind of thing and you got a hell of a podcast voice but uh but what, where do you see the future going for yourself i've asked myself this question if everything were were to return to normal tomorrow um would i even want to come back after seeing an entire industry for two years, not two years, I shouldn't say that, but, but uh, watching an entire industry self-immolate, but also to wish that people like myself uh, to have a hard life, to, um, to be denied medical care, the, the cruelty and the callousness of these people. Um, I don't know if I want to work with these kind of people anymore, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it, it's it, maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm a Scorpio, so I don't, I don't forgive very easily. So I don't know. Um, but as far as, as that, you know, maybe I'll be doing that uh, later on, but at the same time, what's beginning to happen, the more, the more visible I become, the more I sort of am collecting other like-minded, this is a weird gesture on camera. The more, uh, <laughs> the more I'm collecting, uh, uh like-minded people, um, who are saying we're done with this. We, you know, cause my, my opinion right now, is that the people who were so who are so careless about our culture, about our our, our business, our industry, and what we do for a living? Um, it may not be essential to other people, but it's essential to me yeah. and to us. And um, I don't think they're fit for purpose anymore to to maintain the future of the industry. So, um, so you know, having conversations, meeting with people, um, trying to figure out what we can do. Um, as far as myself personally, um, it's really cool. Uh, I'm, I'm becoming more of a, I'm becoming more and more committed. I mean, I never set out to do this, but committed to the idea of becoming more of an, an influencer or a content creator. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm becoming, you know, it's weird because uh, I've spent my life in front of audiences. So, so but I've never sought fame. Uh, I don't really need it. Um, but I'm not, but I'm, I'm comfortable with, um, with the visibility. So, you know, if it takes somebody like me to, to begin to, um, uh, become a, a leader in this space, then I guess it'll it'll have to to be that way. Um, like I said, the podcast has really taken off. I've got some really exciting guests coming up. Um, I really want to focus more on 
um, the artistic side of what we call the culture wars, because, you know, we only we only really pay attention to the arts uh, when, when we complain about how they're taken over by uh, liberals. And I'm like, you know, but um, a friend of mine said that uh, the health of a culture can be measured by the kind of art that it produces. And um, I think if I can serve as some kind of ambassador for for the art and for artists to a wider audience, then that then that would make me very, very, uh, very uh, happy. And the more that we can, uh, that I can create a world where people from all all perspectives can come in and enjoy um, the sort of spiritual and soul nourishment that art can provide, as lofty and pretentious as it may sound, uh, the, the better. Um, so, you know, that, that's where I'm focusing right now. Um, you know, I've, I'm starting up a, a locals community very, very soon um, and, and going in that, that route so I can, uh, over time, do more content creation full time. I want to do more music. Uh, I want to do go to live performances and maybe do some touring and stuff like that. So, uh, and just, and use what my, my skill set, where, where it's strongest. It's not, my, my wheelhouse really isn't, you know, all the political commentary. I, I, I like, I enjoy that stuff, but, um, you know, I'm really built to be a, a performer in, in some, in some aspects. So that's what I want to really, um, uh, if I can make a living doing this, doing that, uh, or more than living, uh, make, make a fortune. How about fortune that? Uh, doing that, then, uh, then, then that would be, that would be better. So for right now, you know, I'm, I'm a mediocre Twitter personality. Uh, you know, the, the following is steadily growing. Um, the YouTube channel is steadily growing and, um, it's opening up more doors. And so we'll see where it, uh, where it leads. All right. Well, I like to think my listeners are pretty smart and can find all this stuff on their own. But why don't you just give them the run through where they can find everything you're doing, the Twitter, the YouTube and anything else you want to plug? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my YouTube channel is Clifton Duncan Entertainment. Uh, you can uh, also have uh, backup channels on uh, Rumble and on Odyssey um, at Clifton Duncan. You know, just type in no space, just type in those names. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm starting up a locals community as well. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Clifton A. Duncan. I'm on Instagram at Clifton Duncan Online. And uh, those are the places you can find. Oh, I also have a, a, a Substack uh, called Musings from the Apocalypse, which I which I uh, I write, I update sporadically, but uh, I do want to do much much more writing than I than I have been doing. So, um, if you want to find me, um, you know, uh, then you can you can do that as well. Very cool. Well, Clifton, thanks so much for joining me. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you are a lion. You are out there roaring. Uh, so keep up the great work and keep on roaring, Clifton. Hey, thanks, Mark. I appreciate. It. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right, kitty cats, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Clifton Duncan. He is certainly a lion in his own right. Did a lot of roaring here today, and I did some roaring myself recently on another show that is going to air today. It's the latest episode of the Pete Quinones show. I did go on a rant or two. Let me just say that. So you might enjoy that one. So please do check out the latest edition of the Pete Quinones show with my friend Pete Quinones. While I'm promoting other shows, I may as well tell you about our good friends, Nate and Charlie over on Good Morning Liberty five days a week. These guys kick ass. They are longtime fans, longtime patrons of this show. So you should be checking them out as well. Good Morning Liberty, five days a week. We're checking them out at BernieLies.com, one of my favorite URLs of all time. And of course, check out all the shows on the Lions of Liberty Network. We got Brian on Wednesdays with Electric Liberty Land, John on Thursdays with Finding Freedom. You can find all those shows 
on the Lions of Liberty Network. You may be listening there. You can also subscribe to them all individually, including this show, The Lions of Liberty with Mark Clairefeed. It's up to you. We give you options. That's all we're saying. And of course, there's even more content. That's right. More content behind the old paywall, whether it's on Patreon at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty or on locals at lionsofliberty.locals.com. You get early access, live versions of almost, if not all, of my interviews. You got Conspiracy Corner. You got Degenerate Gamblers. You got all sorts of stuff. You got Good Morning Fuckhead each and every morning from Brian McWilliams. You really can't beat this value. As little as $5 a month, so please do consider supporting this show, which helps us put more time into it and helps us do more of what we truly love, which is talking about these ideas. So head over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com. Until next week, my friends. Live long and live free. 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 And live free.